Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, come to the dispatch.com to check out all of our wares. Um, uh, and uh, please do check out uh, Scott Lincecum's latest uh, newsletter, which we have brought out from behind the uh, insurmountable and adamantine paywall, uh, because it is, uh, first of all, so good. And second of all, it's about why we should be optimistic about all this stuff and people should check it out and maybe get a taste for uh, subscribing. And, um, and you know, when he's saying what he's talking about being optimistic, he's talking about the pandemic that we're kind of turning the corner and we may actually get out of this pretty soon. And I got to say, I'm looking forward to it because one of the worst things about the pandemic is that ever since we hired this guy, Declan Garvey to uh, work at the dispatch, I've wanted to recreate the scene from the Simpsons in the writer's room where the, the producer of the show, uh, abuses the right, the, all the Harvard writers. And, and at one point asks one of them to sing fair Harvard and then throws uh, paper in his mouth, uh, <laughs> or his crumpled up script in his mouth. So, uh, hopefully when we get back in the office, we can do that. Instead, we're going to have to do all this virtually. And I have, uh, Declan from the dispatch, the, the, the lead, what do you call yourself? The lead author for the morning dispatch and, um, whatever you guys call me. Yeah. The, the main cat wrangler, um, <laughs> of the morning dispatch. And, uh, uh, one of the reasons I want to have you on is you wrote this monster, uh, long piece about, uh, and I look, I do not throw stones about writing long. So, you know, let's just clear about that. Um, your, your co-founder does. So <laughs> it's good to he know. He does. He does. Um, that's because his lips get tired when he has to read it. But, um, <laughs> Uh, you wrote a big piece about whether or not the GOP was going to go the way of the Whigs. Um, and, uh, why don't we, why don't we, first of all, you just, before we get started on that, I just want to, I want to, uh, can, can you do a little explainer of who the Whigs were? Because the word Whig is one of the more annoyingly deceptive words in Anglo-American history. Um, because there's there's Whig history, there's the original term Whig, which was actually a pejorative, um, which people don't really recall. Um, that it was, I have, I, I, I looked it up to make sure I remembered that right. Um, uh, Whig, whatever its origin in Scottish Gaelic, was a term applied to horse thieves and later to Scottish Presbyterians. <laughs> it connoted nonconformity. One of the same. And, exactly. I mean, it's almost like why do they? It's like why do they 
even separate those terms. They're just repeating <laughs> themselves. It connoted nonconformity and rebellion. It was applied to those who claimed the power of excluding the heir from the throne. Um, uh, anyway, we can that we're not getting into English history, but why don't you explain who the the, the Whigs were and and um, and why they came apart, and then we'll get to the we're, we're going to push the rank punditry back to the second part of this. Good, good. Um, well, thank you uh, for for having me on to to talk about this piece. It, it uh, I think it came in at just under six thousand words. That the goal was three thousand, and then I just turned my history major brain on and kept going. But um, in in this context, the uh, the Whigs that I'm talking about are the is the American political party that uh, was stood up in the 1830s in direct opposition to Andrew Jackson and and his uh, his version of the Democratic Party that kind of came about with with his presidency. And so some of the leaders there were uh, Henry Clay, who was in the House, in the Senate, uh, Secretary of State, and and William Seward. And um, it became kind of a a party that existed almost entirely in opposition to Andrew Jackson. And, um, and it kind of understandably started to have some problems when Andrew Jackson uh, exited the scene and kind of his, his brand of politics uh, exited the scene. And because these parties were kind of leaning up against each other as, as the rationale for existing. Um, now, that's to, not to say that the Whig Party wasn't successful in the 1830s and 1840s. It was that it, it won a couple presidential elections, although um, both both Whig presidents that that won elections died shortly after um, being elected into the office, and so the unelected vice presidents came in. Um, that wasn't the party's fault. Just <laughs> no, no, just yeah. happenstance. But uh, but but the these kind of divides and and kind of this uh, lack of rationale for for its existence kind of came to a head in the uh, early to mid eighteen fifties when uh, this party that had been up until that point, kind of a, a national party, North and South, it kind of bridged, bridged sectionality, um, really became divided over the issue of slavery. And, and it was a, an issue that uh, congressional leaders and, and, and the country as a whole kind of tried to continue kicking down the road and, and kind of punting on through a series of compromises starting in 1820. Um, but then again, with the, uh, the Compromise of 1850, uh, the and then the Kansas Nebraska Act in 1854. It, it, they were trying to kind of hold together and and cobble together this union um, that was deeply, deeply divided on um, this issue of slavery, whether it was one constitutional, two moral, and 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 three whether it should spread and and be allowed in in these new territories as the country was adding states to to the union. Um, and and that divide in the part or in the country was kind of mirrored within the Whig party itself because it um, drew from both the South and the North. And as uh, the, the, the Northern and the Southern factions of, of the party just kind of uh, started to realize that they couldn't be, um, uh, they couldn't coincide on, on this issue. And so um, in 1854, uh, a handful of former Whigs uh, founded founded a new party, the Republican Party, in in Rapan, Wisconsin, um, and and that kind of quickly grew uh, throughout the North. Originally, uh, there were, there were a handful of uh, Whig splinter groups, so to speak. Um, some of them existed prior to the 1850s, but really gained prominence in the 1850s. I think that includes the 
Know Nothing Party, which was also anti-slavery, but um, uh, also anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic. Um, and then the, the Free Soil Party um, was, was more strictly about slavery uh, and, and the, its opposition to it. And the Republican Party was kind of able to win out among those factions, um, kind of combining all three of those uh, uh, planks into, into kind of one it was still a sectional party, mostly Northern, but uh, big enough to win elections. And they, it was founded in 1854. Uh, they won a handful of congressional seats in the 1856 election, but lost uh, the presidential election. And then in 1860, as, as everyone knows, Abraham Lincoln uh, kind of swept into the, the White House. So it was really a, uh, a, a very short time from starting a new political party, kind of fracturing one of the two um, major dominant parties in the process. And then six years later, uh, ushering in an era of kind of decades long Republican rule, um, under, under kind of a new coalition. Um, and so that was, that was the kind of where I started, uh, as I was looking to, to kind of explore this piece and, and if there are any parallels to today. So one of the things I, um, first of all, whenever I try to do my 19th century political history reading, I get very frustrated because the differences, whenever I try to like understand the differences between the Democrats and the Republicans, I mean, I mean, the Democrats and the Whigs back then, I get the feeling like there was a giant cardboard box and you put all of the different principles that American people believe in and you shook it up and you said, okay, the Whigs, you guys get these four things and the Democrats, you get these five things. And so like why the Whig party, which was in favor of like, uh, government intervention in the economy, sort of a more progressive thing, um, but was also considered the conservative party, um, um, you know, is, you know, why those things went together then in that party and why those things and why the Democratic Party, which was for a re, sort of a more radical egalitarian party that didn't favor government intervention because that they thought it would just be exploited by the wealthy and the powerful. It's like, all those things exist in our politics, and then sometimes they just get jumbled into different bundles in different places. But one of the things I, I, I if I if I ever knew the answer, I've forgotten it. Why would slavery destroy the Whigs, but not the Democratic Party? Presumably, there were Democrats in the North too, and 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 so much of slavery was really a North-South thing rather than a um, right-left thing. How come it was fatal for the Whigs, but not for the Democrats? It's a good question. Um, it. I would say that generally speaking, uh, the Democrat, the Democrats at that time did have, um, uh, members of the party in the North, but they were much more, uh, centrally kind of, uh, located in, in the South. And they, um, did that in a, I mean, in, in a way where, um, they were able to kind of maintain at least a, a winnable, um, coalition there, um, in, in the South and, and kind of to your point about the, the jumbled ideologies, at least from my, from my reading of it the past couple of weeks, it really does seem that kind of the Whig party, uh, basically stood for whatever Andrew Jackson didn't. And, and he was such a, uh, kind of, um, uh, abrasive force to American politics. And he, I mean, he kind of broke a lot of the existing orthodoxies at the time. So then um, by kind of a nature, the, um, the opposition to him did as well. So it was, um, but yeah, so that, I mean, I would generally say that 
uh, the Democrats were, and, and not to, that's not to say that a lot of former Democrats in the North did eventually make the switch over to um, the the Republican Party, but it just wasn't in as big of numbers as the Whigs because the Whigs uh, were, even though they they bridged the divide, they were primarily a Northern Party, and even though um, Democrats bridged the divide, they were primarily a Southern Party. The numbers just didn't um, affect them in the same way. So. Um what, if any, I'll let you take this anywhere you want, are the parallels between what happened to the Whigs? Uh, as, as you guys would say when writing in your little blue books at Harvard, uh, uh, the Whig era and today compare and contrast, right? So what, what, what are the, where does the, where does the comparison work and where does it fall apart? Yeah. Um, well, this is, I, I, tr- I set out to write this piece to kind of ha- come to a definitive answer one way or the other of whether this is a good comparison or not. Um, and I don't, I don't think I necessarily did. There are, there are ways where it works and there are ways where it doesn't. Um, and I mean, one, one of the ways where it works, in my opinion, is the Republican Party today is kind of split on this uh, very deep, very real issue over kind of um, not nece- not necessarily Trump himself, although he's kind of the the symptom of of the split, but kind of the forces that he represents. That's um, you know anti institutionalism, kind of uh, conspiracy driven thinking, things like that. Um, and kind of like the split with the Whigs, uh, there's there's not really a way to compromise on some of this stuff. It's either you're you're with Trump 100, um, and he'll enforce that if you're not. Um, and as he's shown that he'll continue to do even out, out of office, um, or you can't stand the guy and you want the Republican party to, um, disavow him and, and move on and completely, uh, kind of blackball him from the party. That's where you've seen Liz Cheney go in recent weeks. And she's kind of continued to to double down on that position. Um, and there's just not really an in-between there. You can't be like, well, I mean, people will try and, and we've seen, you know, Nikki Haley is an example of someone who's tried to kind of bridge that divide where, say, um, you know, I I, uh, I agree with so much of what Trump did, but what he did after the election was wrong. And, um, you know, in theory, I guess that that kind of um, triangulation makes sense, except for the fact that now she's dead to Trump. <laughs> and um, you had Donald Trump Jr. days after she that Politico uh, profile of Haley went up tweeting or retweeting people saying, I'd rather vote for Joe Biden than Nikki Haley. And, um, you know, Nikki Haley's political career is over. And um, the Politico reported recently that she tried to reach out to Trump to have kind of a uh, reconciliation meeting after that, after that article and Trump rebuffed her. And so um, there's kind of a, you have to kind of pick a side here, one or the other, um, and you can't really compromise just as you couldn't really like people tried, but you can't really compromise on the issue of slavery. It's either you believe it's moral and just and that should, it should spread or you don't. And there's not really an in-between there, even though people tried to cobble one together. And so um, that's that's kind of the the main parallel that I've seen there. And, you know, the polling will will indicate that uh, the majority of the Republican Party as it exists today. Obviously, people have been leaving the party um, uh, for the past four years as new voters have been coming in. 
but kind of as it's currently constituted, um, somewhere between 60 and 75% of the party wants to continue going in that, in that more Trumpy direction and, and somewhere from 25 to 40% do not. And, um, the Republican party needs both of those coalitions to continue to win on a national level. They can be successful in, in states, uh, that are, uh, very red and they can kind of continue to be successful on kind of a regional basis, but to win national elections, to win the presidency, you really need both of those, um, parts of the party to kind of come out in, in full force. And I just see it's going to be increasingly difficult to keep the new voters that Trump bought into the tent, um, while not shedding some of the more traditional conservative Republican voters that, uh, in many ways, the, the new people are actively repelling, trying to say, we don't want you here. We like trying to expel, uh, or, or primary Liz Cheney and, and people who agree with her. And so, um, that'll be an interesting, uh, an interesting path for the party to, to chart out in these next couple of years, um, whether they can kind of keep that coalition together. And, and, um, if, if the parallel to the Whigs holds up, they, they won't be able to, it's kind of an irreconcilable, uh, divide. Yeah. I mean, so like before when I was saying the thing about how you read about 19th century politics and it feels like someone just did 52 card pickup with the different positions that Americans hold and put them into two different piles. Um, part of the, it seems to me the part of the problem with the analogy and, and this is not a criticism. It's just, it's the way his, history works is that it's all jumbled again in that the, the, the Andrew Jackson figure here is the Republican, not the Democrat. Right. And so, uh, the, the, I mean, I don't know how many Democrats became Whigs when they were horrified by Andrew Jackson, but that's sort of more of what we're talking about here. Right. And then you have, then you have the fact that, look, I, I think both of our records of being, shall we say, skeptical of Donald Trump, uh, are, are pretty solid, but I don't think either of us would argue, and I don't want to speak for you, even though it's in your employment contract that I can, uh, I, I, I don't think either of us would argue that, um, Trumpism is the moral equivalent to chattel slavery. <laughs> Correct. Correct. And, so, and, I, and I tried very hard to not to make that clear in, in the piece as well. Um, yeah, but but there are there are definitely shortfalls to to this analogy. And I think and one of the biggest ones is that in the in the 19th century, there really didn't exist at a, at a national level. Um, a party that was defined entirely by opposition to slavery. And, um, you know, the, the free soilers did, um, and they, they had ran presidential candidates, but they were, um, almost like the libertarians today in terms of size and scope and, and, and what they could do. Um, and there, there is not a, a similar, um, lack of places for people to go today. If you oppose Trumpism, there's an entire party, the Democrats that, um, exist entirely, basically, to 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 take your point, uh, to oppose Trumpism the way that uh, the way that the Whigs originally opposed uh, Andrew Jackson. And so, um, I guess the the, the question is um, whether that bridge is is too far for um, 
you know, ex-Republicans uh, that are looking for somewhere else to go if they feel that they can um, can kind of make the move over to to Joe Biden's Democratic Party or if they feel like uh, they're equally repulsed by what they see there. And so, I mean, that, that'll be kind of the million dollar question um, over these next couple of years is whether kind of this, this shift that we saw um, to the Democrats in suburbs among um, kind of upper class white voters away from Republicans, if that was a temporary thing while Donald Trump was on the ballot, or if this is kind of a more permanent um, realignment of, of these coalitions. Um, and if it is, then I think the, uh, the Republican Party is going to be in real trouble. But if, if the GOP is able to kind of claw back some of those more traditional Republican voters, um, uh, they, they, I think, will continue to be um, tremendously viable. It's just a matter of how do they do that while not upsetting the former president and, and kind of the people who came to the party because of him. Yeah, no, and I think one of the points that you make, you know, uh, at least suggestively in it, is that while Trump is by no means the moral equivalent of slavery, um, there is still this binary choice thing when it comes to believing the lies that led to the January 6th assaults, right? It's either you believe it or you don't believe it. And I mean, I, I understand that, you know, Scalise and McCarthy and a lot of these guys are trying to split the baby on this in all sorts of clever ways. But at the end of the day, either you believe it or you don't believe it. And, um, and the benefit that the thing that Scalise and those guys have going for them is that no one thinks that they're speaking out of principle in any way, shape or form. Uh, everyone understands that they're just cynically playing word games. And that is a far that is far more redeeming um, a defense of them than saying they're being honest. <laughs> because <laughs> yes. you know, if they're being honest, then I got real problems. If they're just being craven hacks, it's like, oh, okay, that's that's <laughs> you know that's 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 something else entirely. Yeah. Um, but uh, so the the so you talk to a bunch of uh, Republicans. You talk to uh, Toomey, Murkowski. Sass, all of them, none of them are remotely interested in at least telling you that they're interested in leaving the party. Yes. And, um, yes. So that, I mean, that was kind of the, one of the main conceits of my piece was um, at the, for the Republican party to get off the ground and be successful, uh, loads of former, um, former Whigs up and up and left um, kind of changed their party affiliation once they were in Congress or, um, the next time they ran for re-election ran under the Republican banner rather than the Whigs. Um, and there, I mean, there, as far as I've seen, there's no indication that that is remotely, um, remotely appealing to, to any current Republicans. And I tried to talk to, uh, Republican officials who would be the most likely to do that. Um, so talk to, I didn't actually talk to Lisa Murkowski, but uh, she did an interview with her hometown Alaska paper about this issue. Um, but I did interview Ben Sass from Nebraska, Pat Toomey, um, Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, um, who have been kind of long time critics of, of Trump and, and Trumpism. Um, and they basically don't see uh, 
a path for for a third party. Uh, Sarah interviewed Mitt Romney on the Dispatch podcast yesterday, and he reiterated reiterated the same thing that it's just not realistic to um, stand up a third party. And and I agree with that. I think the um, as as much as the founders did not want party factionalism uh, when they were kind of framing up the the constitution and and the way that uh, the federal government would be run it's basically designed for two parties and, and that, that two party uh, system has been legally and politically entrenched for 200 and some years. It it doesn't um, there's just not a viable way to have kind of a a third party eat into uh, national politics in a, in any real meaningful way. It might work on a local level in some instances, but um, as things are currently constructed, there isn't. And so kind of the, the option uh, and and this is what the Republican Party did when it was founded was form something else to kind of torpedo the existing um, the existing structure and replace it rather than become a a third party in and of itself. And um, the Whigs, t- to their credit, kind of recognized that's what happened and all kind of scattered <laughs> within within two years. It was really rapid um, the the dissolution there. And so um, you, you know they're there will continue to be talk about uh, a third party for moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats and um, to kind of oppose the, the more extreme uh, factions of, of both of those parties. But um, realistically speaking, for, for it to be successful, it would have to kind of take one of those parties out uh, within a couple of years to, to kind of fill, fill its place. And I don't know um, that that's possible. And, and, and Republican elected officials, at least now, are publicly saying that it's not. Um, I, Larry Hogan, um, in, his, in his comments to me, uh, reiterated that he, um, you know, he wants there to be a four-year fight for what he calls the soul of the Republican Party, um, and that he's not sure that his side will win it. It's a distinct minority right now, but he'd rather stay and have that fight than, than leave and, and uh, try and start something new. And I think that's kind of a, a common theme that you're seeing from uh, this uh, admittedly very small minority of the Republican Party um, that is trying to stay and, and, and push this fight from within the party rather than leave and, and stand up something new. So that's kind of the, uh, the, the rub here. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's sort of fascinating to me is that it, the opportunity for Donald Trump to actually make this his party is so propitious, so like, I mean, it's just all low-hanging fruit. Um, and he doesn't know how to do it because, you know, like when McConnell, when, he had, when Trump issued his statement about McConnell, you know, calling him a dour cocaine lackey of China or whatever it was he said, um, he said, we're going to support primary opponents who support an America first, blah, 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 blah. Thing. And the the biggest joke about all of that is that what Trump means by supporting the American First program is just basically blind loyalty to him. Because if there is one politician who deserves an enormous amount of credit for actually shepherding through the policies that Trump calls America First policies, it's Mitch McConnell, right? But So it's not like Mitch McConnell has, has offered a lot of philosophical disagreements about the actual Trump agenda policy agenda, whatever it may be. Um, 
he just criticized them for how he behaved outside of that capacity. And that's all it takes. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's so, it's so interesting how it's, it's, it's so much more of a market side thing than a supply side thing, because the reason why it's a cult of personality and all that kind of stuff is because the forces and institutions on the ground want it to be. And, um, you know, you had that guy at that, that Pennsylvania, uh, Republican officials saying, Hey, we didn't elect Pat Toomey to quote unquote, do the right thing or vote his conscience. <laughs> I mean, like when you have those kinds of people saying that kind of stuff, right. it makes it really easy to turn it into a cult of personality party. And, um, and the problem is uh, among the problems, Trump's an old man. And like, if you don't give people some sort of larger intellectual or political superstructure to believe in other than blind loyalty, to one dude, by definition, that can't last as a viable thing, right? If it's, if it's purely Trumpism and defined as loyalty to one dude, that's not transferable to somebody else. And, and, and in some ways that makes him more like the Andrew Jackson figure than anything else. Right. Right. And, and, Polling has tried to get at this issue too. I, I cited in the in the piece this um, CBS News survey from early se- early February that seventy five percent of Republican voters believe it is quote very or somewhat important that Republicans be loyal to the former president, and that's um, <laughs> and and you're kind of seeing that in pretty much every every Republican that voted to impeach, even even a Republican that uh, voted to uh, view the con- or the the impeachment trial as constitutional, not even um, actually vote to convict. That's getting censures from from state and local Republican parties. That's the official that you mentioned from Pennsylvania. Um, and 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 so it's that's that's another distinct difference between uh, here and and the Whigs is that uh, the Republican Party was born yes because. Uh, a lot of leaders took the plunge and, and started something new. Um, and I should say on that point, um, a lot of, a lot of the former Whigs that left were not under any impressions that the Republican party would be wildly successful early on. They, they, um, I mean, they hoped and, and they, they prayed, but I have this quote from, um, William Seward who ended up serving as, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's secretary of state, but he was a senator, uh, a Whig senator at the time. And, and when he left the party, he gave this speech saying, I do not know. And personally, I do not greatly care that the Republican party shall work out its great ends this year or the next or in my lifetime, because I know that those ends are ultimately sure. Um, and so they, they were kind of taking this plunge to this new thing without knowing what it would become of it and, and what would, uh, what would happen. They ended up, you know, for much of the latter half of the 19th century, uh, basically running American politics post-Civil War. But um, I find a very compelling analogy to the launching of the dispatch and all of that, just so you know. Ex- um, exactly, exactly. It's uh, William Seward got on a pirate skiff, so to speak. But <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, I think that there, uh, but at the, at the, on the other end of, of Seward making that leap were, throngs of voters who were craving something different as well. Um, and that's not necessarily the same here. I mean, it's, 
uh, it's there are plenty in in Washington D.C. There are plenty um, that get written about in 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 the media and and featured on TV, but uh, polling doesn't indicate the same desire. I mean, there there actually was a uh, poll showing that Republican support for a third party was at an all time high, but it was primarily led by um, Trump supporters that believe that the Republican Party, as it exists, wasn't loyal enough to to the former president. And I mean, that was taken after uh, after eventually after um, much much hoopla, um, the Congress voted to to certify the results of the election and um, and give give Biden the presidency. Um, but but kind of there is there is a a, a bursting at the seams between these two factions. It just seems like the um, the anti-Trump faction is is increasingly small. But that I mean, it's four years. A lot can change. Um, I, I I do think though that the the best opportunity for the party apparatus as a whole to make a clean break from Trump has come and gone. There was kind of a window um, where his polls tanked, even within the Republican Party, kind of close to the events of January 6th, um, and where Republican officials had uh, felt a little bit more leeway to to break from him and, and um, denounce him and things like that. Even, you know, people like uh, Kevin McCarthy, who have been among his, his most ardent allies the past four years. Um, but then, but then those officials started getting pulls back from their own districts and seeing, Oh no, this is not what my voters want at all. Um, and, and so they kind of came back into the fold and, and kind of, there was that two, two week window maybe where the party could have, uh, done something more where actually impeached him with broader Republican support and, uh, and maybe even convicted him and, and barred him from holding future office. But I think that's come and gone. And now, it's kind of up to up to Trump in terms of how much uh, he wants and is willing to work to uh, maintain his his role in the party. Yeah, I mean, this sort of points to uh, one of my broken record points about how you know it's like nobody in this town knows how to play baseball anymore, right? I mean, it's like the the Democrats were key to that opportunity, and if Nancy Pelosi had the I don't know if it's the, the the wisdom, the vision, the foresight, the desire, whatever it is, to actually seize on that moment with some statesmanship, um, rather than just seeing things through a very narrow partisan blinders, which doesn't mean, I mean when I say partisan blinders, I, I don't necessarily mean that like it was a purely cynical move. It, there may have been some cynicism in it, but it's that, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If if you see everything through the prism of a sort of literally a San Francisco Democrat, you know, progressive vision of stuff, there's just some things that just don't occur to you um, to like think outside. It shouldn't be outside the box. It should be like, you know, if you know anything about political history, it would have it should have been kind of obvious that the Democrats, she should have bent over backwards to frame the entire impeachment effort in ways that those Republicans in that moment critical of Trump would be, get bought into. And because you know the Democrats would come along no matter how the articles of impeachment were written. Uh, the Democrats would vote again for impeachment even if all of the managers were Republicans, which would have been like the smartest thing they could have done. I mean, maybe keep Jamie Raskin as the head of it, 
but then make it like Liz Cheney on down for everybody else. And if Pelosi had a sense that her job as Speaker of the House wasn't the leader of the Democratic Party in the House, but was in fact the Speaker of the House as the Speaker of this institution, you could have seen a very, I think you could have seen a very different outcome. But my point is, is that, you know, that it's not just Madison Cawthorn or whatever that guy's name is, or Matt Gates who have no clue about what governing is supposed to look like. This is an institutionalized problem basically in both parties at this point. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you, you can criticize how both parties got there, um, in, in, the in the way that they did and and how only 10 republicans ended up voting to impeach in the house and seven seven in the senate um but all of these people are acting in their best political self-interest or at least what they believe it to be and so um it's interesting to kind of take that step back and 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 look at why it is that uh that they believe that to be in their self-interest and um i was talking to uh, Sarah, as I was, I was writing, writing this piece and she, uh, made a point that it it would be very helpful for both parties, but focusing on the Republicans here to have kind of like a overall general manager of, of what's in the, uh, like a sports team, what's in the party's best interests in the near term, in the long term. And, you know, sometimes with a, with a sports team, you lose for a couple of years to get a bunch of high draft picks and, and, um, shed some some salary and, and some dead weight, and then come back on the other end of it uh, better better than ever. Um, and that it would be nice to have somebody say like uh, like a Mitch McConnell or like a Kevin McCarthy kind of make that decision to say, all right, we we might lose for a couple of years, but in order to um, kind of rejuvenate and, and revitalize our party, it's worth it in the long run. But instead, you have you know, however many, some, some 200, uh, elected Republicans in Congress and, and officials kind of all across the country that are looking out for what's best for me for the next two days, or <laughs> what's going to get me through this crisis. What's going to get me, um, avoid getting me a censure. What's going to keep a primary challenger at bay. Um, and, and that last point, uh, talked to a couple of Republican strategists about this as well. Um, the, we we talk about kind of the um, the polling showing that Republican voters want want um, their elected officials to be loyal to Trump, et cetera. Um, you know that there are degrees within that in terms of um, some people care about that first and foremost. Others care about it a little bit. Others care uh, not at all. But the people that vote in in primary elections are the people that care the most <laughs> about it. Those those are the those are the people who take the time to join the state parties and, and are um, going to grassroots events and um, kind of leading, leading the charge. And, and because, um, because the, the parties are so polarized where most of these elected officials are much more concerned about primary challenge than they are a general election um, challenge, that's, that's where uh, that, those are the people that these elected officials are most afraid of offending. And so that's kind of an, uh, a uh, demand side thing that that is is leading a lot of these Republicans to to get to the point where they are. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that it's taken me a long time to get my head around that 
the desire to get reelected, the, the, the desire to, uh, the power of incumbency psychologically and the desire to get reelected has remained constant. What's changed is the mechanism by which you, you guarantee that. And it used to be that the way the party system was set up and the political landscape was set up was that the, the, the important thing was getting to that, that, that 50 plus one voter, that swing, that inflection voter in a general election. That's what guaranteed that you got reelected. And the problem is, is that now because of polarization, gerrymandering to some extent, um, all these other things, big sort, yada, yada, the desire to get reelected is now the, 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 the point of, as the Marxists would say, praxis, uh, is in the primaries, not in the general election, because you just get, you, you win the general if you get the nomination. And, and so it's, it's not like our politicians have become more craven. It's that the, although some have, it's that the, the way you opera operationalize your cravenness is, is different now. And so it makes them look more craven when in reality, all of those I mean, you're too young to remember, but you know, all of these squishy Republicans who just, and Democrats who never wanted to go too far from the center for fear of losing a general election, um, you know, which I spent a big part of my youth criticizing those kinds of people. I now long for some of that. <laughs> um, and um, You didn't but, know how good you had it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I, 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 I do have a question here, but I, I, wanna, I do want to point out something that you said before. Well, I, I think you're right analytically about most of the uh, most of the players in this game that they're acting on their sh their perceived short term political interest. Um, um, one of the other just bizarre ironies of this entire you know Japanese game show universe that we've been living in <laughs> is that um, the one figure the 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 hamster in the in the wheel running the entire Rube Goldberg machine of American politics for the last five years is Donald Trump. And he consistently does things that are not in his own political interest. And if, if, and the amazing thing is, is that is the thing that causes all of the, that is the, 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 the sort of weird radioactive particle that emanates all of this mutation of our American political system, because he does things that are not in his own interest, but because the fatwa has gone forth that you must be loyal to him, they are forcing all these people to be loyal to something that doesn't make sense, whether it's the January 6th siege, whether it's the tweeting. I mean, it doesn't really matter. The point is, if Donald Trump had been 10% more normal as president, he would have gotten reelected. You know, if he had handled the pandemic more reasonably, he would have gotten reelected. And you're not allowed to say that, you know, because you can't question his wisdom and his greatness because that's disloyalty. Right, right. And I, like, I I am of the mind that I, st I still think uh, Trump is is the front runner for the 2024 Republican nomination if he wants it. I mean, that's a that's a big if. Um, Mitt Romney said the same uh, earlier this week to, to a reporter. Um, he for sure would have been the front runner for the 2024 nomination if he just lost the election, conceded, and kind of slithered away. Um, the the biggest, as you're saying, the the biggest impediment to him making a comeback um, 
was kind of the his election lies and and what they led to and and that's where you got even people like Nikki Haley getting off the the train and they'll we'll see but they'll try and get back on uh the the train if if needed but um but that i mean that was his his biggest uh self-inflicted wound <laughs> that he just couldn't his ego could not stomach um ad- admitting defeat and so um but that that being said the because uh, of that the entire republican party has now reor- reoriented itself around those lies and kind of um, put their institutional heft behind them. And so now he, he is the, the front runner again in 2024. So it's an interesting kind of, uh, chicken or the egg question here of, uh, can he, can he do any wrong in, if you give it enough time for, you know, his, his media boosters and in turn voters to, to get behind whatever it is that he's pushing. So. So you mentioned in the piece, um, how the part two. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I read this a while ago, but uh, how the two-party system is pretty much here to stay unless ranked choice voting spreads. Um, I get, it shows you the kind of world, the life I live, that I get asked about ranked choice voting a lot. You know, um, uh, you know, there, there, if you had told me in my teen years that when I grow up, I'll be the kind of person who gets asked about ranked choice voting. Um, I think I would have signed up for the Merchant Marine and never looked back. Um, but uh, have you talked to, you know, I mean, first of all, it, explain what ranked choice voting is, but um, have you talked to anybody about whether or not that really is the silver bullet against the two-party system that some people think it is or hope it is? I mean, um, I haven't made up my mind about ranked choice voting. I, I, it's one of these things that has a very clear appeal to me on, in one sense, but as a as a high priest in the school of unintended consequences, um, I'm always nervous about these kinds of things. So anyway, what do you think about it? What is it? And, and ha- would it in fact destroy the two-party system? Yeah, um, I, I would say that it's necessary to destroying the two-party system, but not sufficient in and of itself. Um, but just to explain quickly what, what it is, is um, it, it is now the, the law of the land in Maine and as of this November, Alaska, um, going forward, uh, two states that couldn't be farther apart, I don't think. Um, but it, it basically allows voters, when you, when you get your ballot, rather than picking Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, et cetera, you you rank them from one to four, however many options there are, and um, it it requires uh, it basically with each round of tallying, it it um, state election officials will remove the the least vote getting option and then uh, reallocate um, that the people who voted for the last choice, whatever their second preference would be, the, those uh, people get the voters, and so. In theory, proponents of it would would say that one, pe- voters will feel freer to to vote for third parties that don't have as much of a shot of winning, and because they're not afraid of throwing away their vote, their vote will still go to um, the eventual winner. Um, but also, what it would do is um, try and push back against some of the trend in, in our politics where we're where we're seeing. Um, pretty much every election nowadays is a, a base election and a, and a pure turnout election where you're trying to 
drive up the unfavorables of the other guy as as much as possible and and excite your core supporters the most, you would then under that system kind of have to appeal to a broader swath of of voters because you can't win with a plurality. You have to win with a majority. Um, and so you can't afford to alienate, um, you know, large chunks of, of voter bases because you might need them to get you over the 50% plus one threshold um, at, at, in subsequent rounds of voting. And so, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I generally, um, I think I'm in favor. I, it's, it seems, um, I mean, I, as someone who's, uh, I don't think I've voted for a, a winning candidate uh, ever in, in my life uh, from Illinois to Massachusetts to, to DC now. Um, and so um, it'd be interesting to, to kind of have uh, my vote go toward, toward something that, that uh, eventually matters. But um, I mean, it, we'll, we'll see. I'd I, I like that the states are rolling it out first. It's kind of a experiment and, and we can see what, if any, are the unintended consequences and, and adjust the system accordingly. But yeah, so now Maine and, and Alaska, and it, it, it could be key to Lisa Murkowski keeping her Senate seat in, in Alaska. I wonder if that, I mean, I, I assume she would have voted for uh, conviction anyways in the, in the impeachment trial, but it certainly doesn't hurt that, um, that that is now how her next election in 2022 will be, will be governed. Yeah. I mean, um, a couple of things. One, I think you're, uh, you're not quite right about Maine and I mean geographically, yes, Maine and Alaska are very far apart. Um, although I assume that Florida is further away. Oh, oh, Hawaii yeah. is the closest warm beach to Alaska. Um, really? Okay. Yeah, that's why my wife's family um, has a long history of going to Hawaii. Um, but Hawaii is farther away than anything is from anything else in the world. Um, and I I used to say that jokingly, and then I looked it up <laughs> the last time I was in Hawaii. It is the island chain that is farther away from any continent than any other island chain in the world. Like the, the nearest continent is like continental shore is like 1500 miles away or something like that. It's just in the middle. Look at it on the globe. It's just in the middle of friggin' nowhere. Um, but there's a lot of Alaska that really reminds me a lot of Maine or vice versa. Not the cities necessarily, or even the cities, the, there's the, the at least Anchorage and Juneau are pretty liberal northern cities, or they have that sort of funky northern thing going on that Maine cities have. Uh, and but like rural Maine and rural Alaska, there's actually considerable similarity and just also considerable light because they're sort of so far north and all that kind of stuff. But I'm with you. I think that at the very least, I have no problem with it as an experiment in these states and. Um, and frankly, since, you know, as a point I've been banging my spoon on my high chair about for a while now, since the president of the United States is not elected technically by the people, he or she is elected by the sovereign states. If the states decide to do that, um, sort of like the national electoral compact, I'm much in favor, much more in favor of that than I am of like amending the constitution to get rid of the electoral college. because if that turns out to be a disaster, all it takes is like one or two states to say, we're not going to do this anymore because, you know, 
look at this steaming pile of rubble that <laughs> you, as a result, and you can pull out of it. It's much harder. So we can to go pull back to our current steaming pile of rubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> look, I mean, look, it, it's as, as I keep trying to tell people, it can always be worse. Yes. Um, so, uh, but so I'm, you know, I, I I'm intrigued by it, and I definitely think it's worth a shot. The jungle primary stuff in California, which is basically ranked choice voting already, but in the primaries, is that, do I have mm -hmm. that right? I think um, so, yeah. It doesn't seem to have yielded anything particularly celebratory, um, but that could be a function of California being a one-party state um, more than anything else. Um, so have you read Bill Crystal's piece about, um, you know, his, 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 as Steve called it, puckish? Piece yes. about uh, Republicans just anti-Trump Republicans becoming essentially the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I think Tim Miller also at the Bulwark coined them the the red dogs of the of the of the Democrats to play off the blue dogs from the '90s. But um, yeah, it's uh, definitely look forward to kind of seeing uh, him fl flesh that argument out a little bit more. I, I listened to your guys talk about it on the podcast today and um, agree that it's uh, would need more kind of uh, structure in terms of how that would actually look. But um, that is kind of the um, without without a third party, either voters can choose to kind of uh, remain in the wilderness and uh, uh, Republican voters who are opposed to kind of the direction of the party uh, could choose to either remain in the wilderness or, or migrate over and try and um, impact the, the Democrats. I just don't know how successful they will, they will be in that endeavor. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to decide if, I mean, again, Bill Crystal's a friend. I like Bill Crystal. Tim Miller's a friend, you know, lots of people over there that are friends of mine. Um, um, but I just, I, I need a lot more, you know, and I, and I also need a lot more at the philosophical level of like why it is that, you know, writers and reporters, when we, you know, one of the reasons we started the dispatch is because, uh, you know, I'll just speak for myself, is that, that the tendency of right of center journalists and, and, uh, and, and it, to, which includes columnists and you know opinion writers and all that kind of stuff see themselves as de facto political consultants for the GOP um and cater their writing and their arguments towards that end was a problem and we thought that that was you know or again I thought that was something that that had led the conservative movement into a ditch in a lot of ways I don't understand why someone like me, just speaking for myself, who believes that should somehow now be persuaded that the job of sort of anti-Trump or non-Trump or never Trump, whatever conservatives should be to adopt that pose for the benefit of the Democratic Party, which may be less demagogic than, you know, the Trumpers are but actually believes in stuff I disagree with even more on a policy basis. I mean, am I, am I really supposed to start defending partial birth abortion or saying it's not that big a deal? Um, uh, because that's to the benefit of the democratic party. I just, I, I can't, I don't know how philosophically to make that leap. And I don't think that's what bill is necessarily arguing, but that's the problem. I don't know what exactly bill is arguing. He just sort of asks these questions 
in a sort of throw it out there, drop the hockey puck, see what people say kind of way, which is something he's been good at for a long time. And I say that again as someone who's, who wrote that about him 20 years ago. Um, but uh, uh, it would be fun to see someone make a really sustained, serious argument along those lines about how that would work. Because you just look at how, you know, the AOC crowd, I mean, I wrote about this a while ago, they want to primary Joe Manchin and find the AOC of West Virginia, which is, you know, like trying to find, you know, the, the, the best Jewish basketball player in the NBA. I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, I don't know, maybe there is one that I don't know about, but it's, my point is, is it's not, it's, it's dumb. And the idea that all of a sudden you're going to bring in all of these Republicans into the democratic party and the, the, AOC Bernie wing, never mind the MSNBC crowd, are just going to be like, oh, yeah, let's, you know, let's talk about how tax, you know, this crowd who believes the tax cuts are good, um, they deserve a fair hearing. I just, I, I don't see it, but maybe I'm wrong. Right, right. I mean, like the, the, um, there, there's a, there's a stat in, in baseball sabermetrics where it's, it's called wins above replacement. Um, and it's basically a measure of how much better a player is than like the average, um, the average person who would, who would be in, in their spot, just a minor league player. Um, and, and the value, the wins above replacement Joe Manchin brings to the democratic party to be able to win West Virginia and then go and vote for a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. Like nobody, nobody else is able to do that, uh, other, other than him. And so, and without his vote, they wouldn't be able to do any of this. So, um, the idea that you can, replace him in a primary just so that that primary candidate can lose by 40% of the vote um, to a Republican. It, it does not make a lot of sense to me. Um, but the, but the broader point definitely uh, stands that, um, you know, Joe Manchin aside, I think most, most non AOC Democrats understand how valuable he is, but, um, but they, <laughs> there won't necessarily, I think be, be welcoming to, uh, large swaths of, of ex-Republicans. Uh, to, to be fair, they, they were to get Donald Trump out of office. Um, there kind of was a um, country over party uh, kind, of, kind of push that you saw amplified by um, uh, uh, particularly Joe Biden and, and kind of his, his governing style and his campaign style. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that um, the the rising forces in the Democratic Party will be any more amenable to um, anti-Trump conservatives than than the current rising pro-Trump conservatives within the Republican Party are. So um, it's it's kind of a, uh, a a lonely road at 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 this point in terms of. But I mean, it's not it's not an insignificant. It's a it's a minority um, of Republican voters, but it's not an insignificant number either. Um, you know. It, whether you believe it's 25% to 40% um, based on polling and, and all of that will change over the next four years, that's millions of, of voters um, that are looking for to, something to vote for rather than something to vote against. Um, and I, it, it beats me in terms of uh, where they'll end up going. I mean, I, I talked to a lot of these voters for this piece um, itself. I put out a, a call on, on, Twitter for, for people who had, uh, left the party over, over disagreements in, in recent months, which you helpfully amplified. Thank you. Um, but, um, 
you know, a, a lot of these voters are saying, uh, I, I asked explicitly, would you be okay joining a, a third party that you know is going to lose for a little while? Um, and almost to a T, they all said, yeah, that's what I've, I've been voting for candidates that lose for five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. Um, I'd be, I'd be more than willing to, to park my vote somewhere, uh, that, uh, that, uh, promotes something that I believe in. And so, I mean, that's, uh, there, there is a, a demand side push for this. It's just not anywhere near as large as it necessarily was, um, back in, back in the 1850s. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, I'm trying to come up with the right analogy, but you know, if, if you have a rope bridge across a Canyon and it's two feet short, two feet is like on a thousand foot chasm seems like it shouldn't be a big deal, but it's the difference between swinging into the cliffside and making it across the chasm. And, and when you have a party that it's coalition and at the presidential level is sort of a naturally 48%, um, you know, Trump lost the popular vote twice. Bush was the only guy to win the popular vote in the last 20 years. And he barely did it. Um, uh, and he only did it once. He didn't win it. The, he only did it for the reelect. Um, you can't afford to lose five, ten percent of your coalition unless you're making it up with other voters. And that's that's the dilemma we've got going forward for the Republican Party. And I say we as a, as an American, not necessarily as a Republican, um, is that they are replacing some of those voters, the sort of bourgeois middle class suburbanites, with downscale. I don't mean that pejoratively either, but, you know, lower income, non-college educated um, voters, mostly white, but at the margin, some Hispanics and, and blacks as well. And one of the interesting things to me is how that's changing the policy structure, uh, the policy program of the GOP. And I don't necessarily mean common good capitalism and stuff, but like just the minimum wage is a more popular thing among Republicans today, in part because there are a lot of, you know, not necessarily minimum wage earning people in the geo voting GOP, although I mean, obviously there's some, um, but this is one of the things that people have never really understood about these minimum wage fights. Lots of state, lots of unions have their pay scales pegged to a multiple of the minimum wage. So if you raise the minimum wage, that means you're also raising other wages, sometimes because of contracts, sometimes just because of the inflation effect where you have to do it because if you're if you're inflating wages at the bottom, that creates pressure from workers to say, wait a second, we're barely making above the minimum wage, blah, 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 blah. We deserve a raise too. And, um, and regardless, like it used to be that the Republican Party is the party of the sort of independent businessman was against federal minimum wage hikes. And that's just changing. And it's changing because the coalition is changing. Right. Um, and, and the most interesting thing to me will, will be, I mean, we have examples of those millions of, of new voters coming to the party. You know, Trump lost, but he lost with 74 million um, votes nationwide. That was um, more than any other candidate besides. And Joe it was Biden. close in those swing states. I mean, right. Exactly. Not as close as, you know, some people claim, but it was it was close. You know, I mean, yeah. in that sense, it was a close election. Yeah. Right. Right. But those voters have demonstrated that they don't show up when Donald Trump's not on the ballot. Um, and, and so that's where you had kind of uh, deep losses on the house level in 2018 midterms um, for Republicans. Trump was not on the ballot. Um, they, they 
the party lost both uh, Senate seats in Georgia in the runoff. Trump was not on the ballot. Um, and, and so you'll see maybe that these voters stick around and they, and they show up and they support um, more traditional Republican candidates up and down um, up and down the ballot in 2022, in 2024, if Trump's not the nominee. But there's a very real chance that they don't. Um, and then what you have is a party that's doubled down on Trumpism to keep those voters in the tent without actually getting them in, in you know, they'll, they'll get 75%, 80%. They won't be able to maximize them the way that Trump can. But in doing that, you've driven away, you know, 20 or to 25 to 30% of, of voters that were very, very reliably Republican um, for decades um, that, that are now no longer uh, so reliable. And so it's, it's a, a different, difficult balancing act to, to make. Um, and, and I mean, we'll know a lot more about how it's playing out as we, we see what happens in 2022. And we see, um, I mean, even starting next year with, with these primaries uh, in, or early next year in these primaries uh, to see who, who the Republicans decide to run against. Um, and that, that seems to be where, um, at least in, in his brief public statements thus far, Trump's uh, plans to try and exert the most influences is over who uh, takes up takes up the mantle in his name. So uh, that that will be kind of the the next big. I mean, it, the impeachment fight was was a big uh, marker of, of where the Republican Party stands. Those those primaries to um, for the 2022 midterms will be probably an even bigger one. All right, Declan, thank you for coming on. You know, um, my wife is a big fan, mostly because you're named after Elvis Costello, but um, but also because she's a devoted reader of the Morning Dispatch. Um, and I want I, I mentioned this in the staff meeting. I want to also thank you for um, doing the right thing and eating a little crow and admitting that it should be called Burma, not Myanmar, um, in the in the Morning Dispatch. Um, but uh, uh, how's it going? Are you still, uh, are, 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 despite my torrent of abuse? Um, uh, are you still, uh, happy to be here? I'm very happy to be here. Yes. Um, and, and thank you to, uh, dispatch reader, Bruce, who, who reached out with a very compelling case to, uh, to make that change from, from Myanmar to, to Burma, um, led to a, a late night scramble. Um, <laughs> one of the nights we had an item on, on the protests there following the military coup. Um, but I, I agree that it ultimately was the right one and, and, uh, we're, we're glad to have made the switch. Um, but yeah, everything is, is going great. We've been adding to the team. We just got, um, Ryan Brown from, from, uh, Chuck Todd and, and meet the press, uh, joined, joined us and he's been helping out on TMD stuff. And, uh, sounds like we'll have an intern coming, um, in, in the summer here, but still having a blast growing, uh, TMD and the morning dispatch and getting to, uh, to cover a lot, uh, uh, different topics now that, that then we were covering for the past several months, we're doing a lot of kind of more deeper dives on policy and, um, and, and, and covering a lot of what we were just talking about, about these kind of, uh, bigger divides within, within the Republican party and how it moves forward. Um, but, but getting to cover, you know, congressional fights over the minimum wage and child, uh, childcare policy and, and things like that is, is definitely, um, uh, a new challenge, and I'm and I'm looking forward to eventually not having to be a science reporter anymore. Um, I, I I took one one science class <clears throat> in college, and it was the science of cooking. Uh, <laughs> so that that has not 
prepared me all that well for uh, covering 12 months of, of a global pandemic. But I think we've uh, managed to cobble together some some uh, base level of knowledge on some of this stuff. And, and Andrew uh, on the team has really become an expert on a lot of it. So um, yeah, it's we're, we're having a blast and, and hope people keep uh, keep starting the day with with TMD. Yeah, the, uh, the, the my brother who went to Ithaca College um, um, to fulfill his, I always remember this, to fill his, fulfill his science requirement took a course called why is the sky blue um which uh <laughs> that sounds like, like it had as, as, m- as much academic rigor as the science of cooking um despite you know you know being at the, the h-bomb but um uh yeah and hopefully we can actually go back to like having an office where we can actually have conversations not over zoom and whatnot because um i am truly in I, I talk to a lot of people over screens now and I don't particularly like it. I don't, I think there's some, some serious damage sort of narcissistic lizard brain damage that comes from seeing your own face while <laughs> having conversations day in and day yeah, out. Yeah, I don't that, like it. I, it's, it's bad. It's, I mean, I think, yeah. I, I, I think there's like, I think there's like some, like if you put, did an EKG of people's brains, you would find that some center of your brain lights up when you're doing this that doesn't normally light up in a conversation. And if you do it for too long, it kind of, it, 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 it burns a hole in your brain somehow. And, and I, I don't know, but I don't, I don't, I don't like and, it. and you have to see the name Nicholas Pompella just in a, in a black screen right below your zoom window. Yeah, <laughs> but I, every- I, I, I completely blank that out. And I got to tell you, I mean, like there are times when like Nick is talking straight at me and it's, I, I just, I just don't see him. It's like, I used to have this, uh, uh, I, I mentioned this on the podcast before, um, buddy of mine, Vin Canato, who's a historian at the university of Massachusetts. And he used to have a Honda civic beaten up old Honda civic. And as two young bachelors, we would go on, we'd drive around in it doing various things. And we were convinced that this car had so little flex and so little game that it was essentially a stealth mobile and that attractive women just literally couldn't see it. Like you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't see us. We were invisible. It was actually a hazard on the road because it, it, it had no appeal whatsoever. And, uh, um, and, and Nick has a similar sort of <laughs> invisibility cloak with me sometimes. So I, uh, and, and anyway, uh, for people who don't know what we're talking about on these zoom things, Nick Pompella, my assistant and the producer of these podcasts or one of the producers of these podcasts, uh, is, uh, he's always monitoring this as we're talking, but he takes his video off and we just see his name sitting here taunting me like the telltale heart. So, um, anyway, uh, I'm not going <laughs> to ask you to sing fair Harvard right now. Um, but when we all get back Don't together, remember the words yeah. and, uh, have you ever written up as a sort of first person narrative, your experience as the head of the college Republicans in 2016? Not, not conclusively. No, maybe that at, can be at some point in assignment. What, at some point you should do that for like the weekend, you know, uh, culture and, and diversion stuff for the dispatch. I think that would be a good piece to do. But yeah, yeah. who, yeah. who am I other than the editor in chief of the dispatch to tell you what you should be <laughs> writing about? So, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Declan Garvey, thanks for being here and, uh, thanks for all your hard work and, um, and get back to work. Will do. Thanks for having me. Hey, egghead. 
Sing Fair Harvard. Fair Harvard. I... <laughs> okay, so Declan is gone. He's back in the salt mines where he belongs. Um, uh, we'll put the, the PC wrote in the show notes, obviously. It's also pinned to the top of his uh, Twitter account, and you should follow Declan on Twitter if you don't and you're on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, I don't. I, I think you've made the right life choice, and you shouldn't let the um, prospect of following Declan be the thing to make you uh, make the switch and actually get on Twitter, nor should you do it even for the glory that is my Twitter feed. Um, but if you're on there already, uh, by all means, go for it. And if you don't get the full uh, TMD, uh, which really is a, a great uh, resource, it saves everybody a lot of time um, by telling you the things that, will keep, you know, this is part of the point of it is it's supposed to be this, you know, news digest thing that um, tells you the stuff you need to know, not just the stuff that you might want to know, but it doesn't waste your time. It's really digestible and really thoughtful with both reporting and analysis in it and it often has good you know pointers to other good stuff um at the dispatch and it is you know our um our our, our primary product on the uh on the on the new from the news division as it were um and uh other than that i got a crazy day ahead of me but there will be a new solo remnant ruminant whatever we call it tomorrow. Um, and, uh, thanks for listening and I will see you next time. <sighs> no, you won't. This is a podcast. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.